I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, listeners. It's so lovely to have you back this week. Episode 12. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with the incredible Professor Trevor Graham, who talked all about the evolution of cancer, which some of it, I have to admit, went went over my head a bit. But he was great, and that was just such an interesting chat. So I hope you enjoyed that. It's an interesting one this week. I speak to a death doula. I talked really briefly about death doula, curating death, and how that seems to have become kind of much more in the public domain. It's something that seems to be talked about more, and there seems to be lots of growing communities who get together to discuss death. There are things like death cafes, for example. I've never actually been to a death cafe, but I mentioned in previous season where I did do a couple of death by dinners, And that's a a sort of gathering of a few people, a handful of people who talk about death and perhaps talk about someone they've lost and then what they think about their own death when that time comes. It's really interesting because we don't talk about death. I think that I, early on in my diagnosis, really struggled to even think about death and I was always trying to avoid the thought. Yeah, death was something that didn't... thought about a lot. He thought about my mortality early on in this diagnosis a lot. And I don't know, it was the first time that we'd ever really talked or thought about my death, but our own deaths. And it's really interesting. I feel that the more I've kind of accepted it, and thought about it and talked about it, I really feel like I've normalised that inevitability. And from all the stuff that I've heard and thought about and talked about, like what happens when you start to think about death and really think about your own death is you live, you really live. And I think that's really true. I think that you know, for the most part, you have to look at this as having a choice. How are you going to deal with it? How are you going to respond to receiving really challenging news, to going through a life-changing experience, to know that when you're told something like having cancer, it might not be that, but in my case it is, your life will never be the same again. And I think engaging with Emma Clare, the death doula I speak to this week, It was just a brilliant, normal conversation around the fact that we're all going to die. And there are growing number of people out there who want to really think about that and want to plan for that. And I thought what was really brilliant is the idea that, like, guess what? Anyone can have a death doula. You don't have to have, like, an end on the horizon anyone can have it anyone can take one on and often it is really about a lot of the organizing that's required around your death 
and how to handle your family around that time and all of those different things that actually we kind of just leave for other people to deal with. But wouldn't it be amazing if we took hold of that ourselves? So I'm going to go into the interview and then have a little catch up at the end. So yeah, without further ado, this is my interview with Emma Clare, the death doula. So I have talked on here about death and I've kind of gradually built up to being able to talk more about death, my own personal feelings around death, other people around me feeling about my mortality and all the things that brings up. And I've also recently interviewed Rebecca Soffer, who is an expert on grief and loss. But today I am speaking to a death doula, which I don't know. I think I'm more excited than anxious about this conversation. But I want to introduce my guest just swiftly because I want to get on with the chat. Her name is Emma, surname Claire. I've just discovered that. I've been calling her Emma Claire. And Emma is a death doula with End of Life Doula UK. And we're chatting today. She's all the way up north in York. And I'm all the way down south in London. Thanks so much for being here today, Emma. Thanks for having me, Katie. It's nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you. Yeah, I was really excited because a friend of mine, actually my best friend, Katie, who's been on this with me, somehow knows someone that you're connected to. We got to speak a few weeks ago because she was saying, has the death doula been in touch yet? Has the death (laughs) doula been in touch? And I was like, no. And then I think you'd sent an email somewhere. Anyway, we're here. It's we are here, yes, and that is often how people hear about us, I think, through somebody else, and yeah, it's nice that it spreads like mm. that. Yeah, so I guess, like, there's a lot to cover on the subject of death. It feels, like, very final in lots of ways. Would you just talk a bit about your own, maybe your own experience of death and what that was like before you came into this as a profession, please? Yeah, of course. In some ways, there's parallels with my other hat, which is psychology, if I can mention that for a second, because I think in the same way that when you're a therapist, people say, oh, you know, now you're a therapist. Do you analyze your friends and things? Mm. I always said, actually, I think I did that before and it was just how I naturally was. And then I found a role that fitted with it. And I think it's the same with the death doula, end of life doula, whatever you want to call us, role, because... I was very lucky. I grew up in a family where death was just quite openly talked about, not necessarily human death from a young age, but, you know, the death of things in nature, the kind of cycle of life. I had a lot of pets growing up and I know, you know, some families might hide that away from children, but it was always very open and we always you know, did things like a ritual in the garden for a pet that had died and had very frank conversations. My family didn't shy away from answering questions about, you know, children ask questions, don't they? And and often I think understand more than we give them credit for when it comes to death. Definitely. Yeah, I think my granddad in particular, so I was very much brought up by my mum and my grandparents and all very into nature and particularly birds, big bird family. And he used to go out on his bike, probably going to sound weird, but it was just normal to me, would bring sometimes bring back a dead bird he'd found. And 
just in terms of, you know, let's learn something from this, you know, let's look at it together and the fascination about, gosh, you know, you don't usually get to appreciate such a beautiful thing in nature so close up. And I think little things like that all the way through growing up just gave me this sense that death was not something to be scared about. It's something you can talk about. It's something that actually we can maybe find some beauty in it sometimes. And then, of course, as I got older, I started to experience family bereavement, particularly my grandma's death. I think I was 21. And that was a real turning point for me because I found it was very sudden. And I was sort of in the hospital with close family. So there was me, auntie and uncles, cousins all around the bed. I just remember kind of going into not detached mode, but very practical mode. You know, I said things like, okay, well, we might each want to say an individual goodbye to her. So I tried to coordinate that and said, okay, well, my granddad's going to have five minutes alone with her now to say anything he would like to say. And then my mum and then me. And I was very, very aware of how can we do this as best we can so that we won't look back with regrets, you know, so we won't look back and think, I wish I'd said this. I wish I'd done that. And then afterward, obviously, you know, I was grieving myself, but a while after that, a few years later, when I was looking back, I thought that kind of felt like it came quite naturally. Like that was my, I just slipped into that role and it was alongside other work that I was doing. So I was, I was um, trained to be a health psychologist at the time. So I was studying things like communication between healthcare professionals and families. I was very interested in that professionally, but I also thought that I think that's what I'm maybe naturally good at. So yeah, I very much went down the road of, I'm probably going into your next question now because I'm talking so much. But Well, I do want to stop you actually, because everything <laughs> you just said is so wonderful and left field, but like shouldn't be. So I love that your granddad showed you a totally different perspective on death and how actually the death of this bird has given you the opportunity to go up close to it and see what it looks like, that you don't get to do that when it's alive. And do you know, like, any more about his context, that he was so able to be so open around that subject? No, that's an interesting question. And uh, it's one, I, you know, I wish I could ask him. I didn't know his parents, but I suspect it was those things get passed on don't they you exactly that's what I'm wondering did something yeah. happen in his life that made him really have a different perspective on death and become really open I, about it or was that his upbringing yeah no I, I really don't know but I um I, I mean there'll be generational things in there won't there about kind of being more stoic and not exactly talk. that's why it surprises me that it was your yeah. granddad that was so open I don't know that it was that explicit that if you'd said it's only with hindsight now that I can see that it just sort of the nuance of death being an okay thing to talk about kind of just ran things it was never like we didn't necessarily say the d words you know mm -hmm. it was just okay to mention those things and and that carried on you know when I mean it was a bit of transaction between us because once I started doing this role and saying you can always talk to me about death then we did start talking about that all the time and it became even more clearly about the topic, you know. Were you aware growing up that that attitude in your home was perhaps not the same as all your friends might have been? Did you have that awareness or was that even true? 
Yeah, I guess I had that aware. I mean, I felt, oh, for, for many other reasons, I always felt different to my peers at school. Well, that wasn't just because of this, but I think there's probably something about we we weren't a religious family. We were quite, I'd say, quite humanisty. So mm-hmm. we very much talked about life being appreciation that life is finite, that we appreciate things while we're here, we live in the moment, that kind of feel obviously kind of underpins all the death and dying thing I don't I obviously don't think there's anything wrong with like have absolutely fine to have a belief and helpful in many ways but um I do think for me personally I'm glad that I've always been given this message that life is finite because I think it gives my life more meaning I very much live in the present which I think is a really helpful thing to do and I think that being more open around death and accepting death forces you to live in the present because you know that's my experience as being told I have a cancer that is incurable it's treatable but it's not curable is you know throws that right up in your in my face basically and it's something I think about every day so but I don't think you have to have an incurable disease in order to accept death and therefore live in the moment but it sounds like you were a death doula before even death doulas may have even existed in this country because well I don't know how long ago that was sorry that's quite presumptuous of me you were only 21 and you're still quite young it seems so it might not have been that long ago but you were doing it weren't you it sounds like when your grandma died I think that's true of all of the work of death doulas I mean we're very keen to say that just because now we have a role and a label doesn't mean that people haven't been doing this work probably since the beginning of humans, you know, there's Mm. probably always humans turn to other humans who have been through a life experience, a transition before for advice. And, you know, undoubtedly there are many people, as you say, doing this work without using the role because it is just a human to human thing to do, isn't it? Mm. And I think that's true of a lot of other end of life doulas that they probably have come to this through experiencing a personal bereavement, through supporting family and friends, supporting people in their community. And then they've found this role that, oh, actually, this is a formal thing as well as. Does it tend to be a job that birth doulas go on to do or is that quite separate? I don't. I think there are a few examples where people do both because obviously there are a lot of parallels. We often use this example of um, being like a midwife, but for the other book end of life, when we talk about what we do, you know, a big life transition, very personal, somebody's wishes and preferences, central. Ideally, you have a plan A and a plan B, that kind of thing, which are all similarities, I think. But I think if you're talking in general, most people do one or the other I don't know of many examples where people do both but I can see that the skills are overlap a lot can you talk then about your path from so you said that after your grandma died you were a health practitioner is that right yeah so so I finished university that same year and just took a job that I could get straight away basically which happened to be like domiciliary care in the community I mean it was a baptism of fire but in a good way I was very shocked to find that the vast majority of people I was visiting were very close to the end of life so I now know the terminology but I didn't at the time because I was totally new to it but most people had been discharged from hospital on fast track referrals you know where they have sort of an estimated six weeks to live 
I remember coming home and saying to my partner at the time, you know, gosh, a lot of these people I'm visiting, they're actually dying. And we both had this conversation about, oh, maybe this job's going to be very miserable and maybe I need to look for another one kind of thing. And then it wasn't long before I thought, oh, I don't know if I could imagine myself doing anything else. It was so infectious, the not everybody, because obviously there's no right way to die or right way to be at the end of life. But so many people were in this space where they were quite accepting. They wanted to focus on meaning in life. They wanted to live in the moment. They wanted to appreciate the little things. And all of that was so contagious that I found myself going home and I stopped worrying about little things. I had a much better perspective on my own life and certainly found that, yeah, other jobs struggled to compare to it. I did go and work in, as I say, I was on psychology training at the time. Yeah, I went and did therapy in children's services and, and mental health services. And, and I did enjoy all that, but yeah, it didn't quite compare to this. So this was your calling, it sounds like. How did you then go about it? Talk to me about that. How do you then move into kind of going, oh, something in this to then really discovering what it was and how you got into it and everything and got qualified? I think I initially, well, it was very separate, but I just saw the end of life dealer training on a Twitter post, I think. And I was very much trying to merge my psychology work and my end of life work. I loved both and I thought there must be a way I can get these to meet in the middle. And I saw the end of life doula training which is living well dying well in the UK I just thought I'd do like a CPD course to be honest like might add something to my psychology work and I think had the experience that a lot of end of life doulas have which is being in a room with people that are open to talking about death was so refreshing I thought oh these are my people like where have you been all this time and a lot of the training is self-reflective you know how can you support other people to deal with their mortality if you've not considered your own yeah transformative I would say really meaningful never be the same again training how long is the training Emma it's in various stages so there's sort of an initial foundation course which some people do because they want to practice as an end-of-life doula and other people do just to kind of add skills to other roles or just their day-to-day life and then there's a full diploma that you can go on and do as well and because obviously it's not the kind of role you learn out of a book or in a presentation the living well dying well very much encourage you know case study work and reflective writing once you've supported somebody so you, you can't really complete the whole thing in less than 18 months so yeah it's right. quite intensive just suddenly thought they must be quite careful about who they take on because there's a line between a fascination with death and wanting to help others through death. How do they distinguish that? Very true. I think there's obviously an application process and I think one of the things they're very careful of, not to put barriers in people's way, but as I say, a lot of doulas I think come to this work after having a personal experience of death themselves. So I know that they're very careful to kind of make sure Is this the right time for people? Are they still grieving themselves? What might the training bring up for them? So not to say they can't do it, but just have a conversation with them. Is this the right time? Mm. Which is important. 
I did a foundation in counselling and psychotherapy years ago in 2012. It was just a year-long foundation, and, and actually it was hugely sort of progressive for my own personal self-discovery. It sounds a bit like potentially this could be as well. So, I mean, without wanting to go too personal, but feel free if you do want to, what are some of the things that, yeah, take you on that personal journey when you're training? Yeah, good question. I think there's obviously the the death and dying part of it, thinking about your own mortality, your own beliefs around death, your own fears about death, but much broader than that as well. You know, obviously in our work, we come across a lot of sometimes difficult family dynamics, mm. you know, at, at the end of life, understandably emotions are very heightened and there can be a lot of conflict. And I know there's a, a big part of the training that looks at our personal experience of family dynamics, you know, what was our role? And I know for me, that was, I know I'm a fixer. And one of the things that we don't, and in fact, you can't do with death, you can't, you, you know, you can't stop it, you can't prevent it, you can't, all you can do is support people through the process. So yeah, a lot of it was personal reflection about my own role, what I notice I do when I'm in a situation like that. Once you're in that situation, working with a family or a person, you can really easily get sucked into those dynamics. You know, you mm. can you can identify with people and feel very strongly like, oh, you know, that was me in that situation. And I so feel kind of aligned with them, whereas actually you constantly need to step back and see the bigger picture. Like that is what you're there to do. Yeah. So a lot of the training is so you can identify looking at yourself and your own history so you can see those things ahead of time and avoid if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess any therapeutic relationship is like about boundaries, isn't it? And that's a really mm -hmm. important part. So once you've kind of done the training, I mean, how much of it's theory, how much of it's practice? When do you actually get out into the field, as it were? And what does that bit look like? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, it is theory and self-reflection. But as I say, it's very much encouraged that you would sometimes volunteer alongside it but people do start practicing after they've done the foundation because so the setup that we have on our side on the end of life do the uk which is like the community of practice side is that as i say it isn't something you can learn just by doing the training you need to start doing it so all of our practicing doulas have a mentor so that's somebody that is there to support them that is there to be an outside perspective as i say to stop you getting kind of pulled in to things that's there to share experience that might be more experienced than you so it is very much like a sort of a condition of being a member practicing member that you would have that mentor there yeah that's kind of how it looks on on the how it works side and are they kind of feeding back to you as you're going along as well yeah so very much be encouraged to kind of meet regularly with your mentor they might be on the end of the phone for any urgent questions as well but definitely to have sort of set times to speak to them and, and check in with how you're doing as well. You know, is this bringing anything up for you? Because, of course, you know, it can be really difficult, heavy work sometimes. So really important to have somebody there. But, yeah, people, I'd say generally in our membership, people do start practising if they want to practise at all. Not everybody does. But start practising, yeah, maybe after the foundation, but ideally progress through the diploma and, and carry on practising while they're doing that. Right. Okay. And so then once you've got the qualification, then you are a qualified death doula. 
what does the work actually look like? Could you kind of give me an example of someone comes to you, you know, kind of out of the blue, what's the process, what happens? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think sometimes it can sound wishy-washy, like we don't know what we do, but actually it's the whole point of our role is that we're flexible and we fill gaps in sort of the existing support a person has around them. So the work looks different depending on who you're supporting because all of us offer practical and emotional support and some of us offer spiritual support as well. So we would always start with a conversation with the person and those around them. So we don't just support the person who's dying, but you know, that might be family, it might be friends and ask the big questions, you know, what really matters to you now? What are your priorities? Getting to know that person so you can advocate for them. I think one of the myths that I'd really like to bust is that a big part of the training does cover kind of what I'd call the softer skills, you know, the listening, what we would call holding space, you know, sitting at the bedside, vigiling, that kind of thing. But actually in practice, the work is really proactive because you want to be, as the doula there, you want to be sort of doing the paddling under the surface, the quickly organising thing so that it takes that away from the family so they can spend quality time. So you're doing some practical stuff, are you, like funeral planning? and Very much so. Oh, I see. All doulas have slightly different experience and preference in what they offer. But yeah, we don't disappear when a person dies. We often do stay with the family to help them with funeral planning, like you say. Also, if you look at the other end of the scale, we don't always work with people who have a terminal diagnosis. Sometimes people who are fit, well, healthy, young come to us and say, can you help me plan ahead? Can you help me document my wishes and preferences just in case? Because obviously we never know when this might happen. So we do a big part of our training is advanced planning so that we can help people with that, which is, of course, a very practical kind of admin task as well. I love that. I I talked on the podcast in one of the earlier seasons about like curating your death and how that's Mm. a big thing now, like death cafes and death dinners and, you know, and so of course the death doula would appear in, in that whole setting, I suppose. And I think it's great that anyone can come to you to say, I'm interested to know what a death doula does. And I want to explore that as an option for me. Absolutely. I wonder how much of a myth there is to, you know, I'm thinking about my father who was terminally ill with pancreatic cancer 17 years ago or so. And no one was by his bedside when he died because he actually ended up dying fairly suddenly in the hospital. We knew it was probably his last days, but we weren't there, sat by him. How much do you find that that idea of kind of holding hands as the person's dying and passing through or however you might describe it is a myth? Like what I'm saying is how much can you plan for the Mm -hmm. actual period, the actual moment of dying? Good question. In the run-up to where somebody's actually actively dying, like in, in the bed, there are so many choices that people can have. You know, obviously, that's why I say have a plan A and a plan B, because of course it's sometimes not possible. But there are so many things like, you know, before you get to that point, how much treatment you want, where you would ideally like to be, at home, in a hospice, that kind of thing. A lot of those things need planning ahead. Might need early referrals, for example. 
what do you want your environment to be like you know is it important to you to get outside you know these are all things that we can write down so the because often the people caring for us might not know us at all before this stage so I really would encourage people to have a think and I know it can be a heavy topic but I don't think it's as difficult to do that as people might think because often when you talk to people about what you would and wouldn't want at the end of your life people have really strong opinions particularly about what they wouldn't want you know because you hear stories don't you and you say oh you know so and so down the road died like in this way and and people instantly say oh gosh you know I wouldn't want that and well the follow-on to that is well there's things you can decide now while you're well you know to make that as unlikely as possible to happen I think a lot of it is that people don't know they have a choice so yeah and also a bit like the topic of grief that I talked about with Rebecca Soffer you know also that person dying my dad didn't talk about it you we all knew it was coming he didn't talk about it we didn't plan his funeral we didn't know what he wanted so like I felt in limbo after he died because I didn't know what he wanted that to look like you know Mm -hmm. so I think there's like you've touched on the fact that it's also for the other people the people who are living past your death very much so yeah we really selfless act in a lot of ways to take on a death doula for those people around you yes I mean we refer to it sort of as a an act of love you know for those you're leaving behind because of course I mean you'll know from the experience you've just said that it's probably the worst time to be trying to make decisions and think, you know, oh gosh, what, what would they have wanted? And if you, yeah, even if it's just, I know my granddad just wrote something down the back of an envelope, you know, and we were like, thank you so much for, you know, now I don't have to think what kind of funeral you would have yeah. wanted because you just handed me a sentence. But on your point about um, the myth of kind of sitting around the bedside and being there at the moment of death, I think, off, maybe often people who train as a doula might imagine that as being a lot of the role and in my experience it hasn't been I think there's only been a couple of people I've been there when they've actually died and that's partly because the whole time you're working with a person the family you're trying to almost blend into the background you know yeah. you want to empower them to feel confident to do this you want to say you know not always tell people what to do but ask questions like what do you feel like doing what feels right to you to sort of honor this relationship you have with the person and so often we're not there and one of the things we do is is prepare people for the fact that they might not be present just like you said because anybody listening to this who works in palliative care will know that it is really common for people to die in that little window of time where people have popped out of the room they've popped the vending machine in the hospital they've just gone to get a coffee and they you know they've sat there for seven days and seven nights and the person dies in that bit but we don't know why but there is something about you know people going in those moments you know people liken it to in the same way you need a bit of space to fall asleep or that people having people around you and life happening around you when people are in that sort of liminal space might pull you between the land of the living and you know being able to kind of slip away and we don't know why but there is Mm, we often say really interesting I do think people choose their time and like for me I think my dad didn't want me there he didn't want my brother there I didn't want to be there in the room I was scared of that potentially being the experience I think I'd feel different now, you know, this was a a while ago, like I said, but I I do find it fascinating the moment at which people choose to go. 
Yeah, same. It's amazing. I mean, it happened with my granddad when he died. You know, we had sat at the bedside day and night for, yeah, it must have been four or five days, I think. And it was a beautiful summer's day and he was such an outdoorsy person. You know, we, it was me and my uncle and my and my auntie and my mum around the bed and we just said, you know, he'd be telling us to go outside, you know, not, sit, not just sit inside. So <laughs> go and find all, a dead bird. Yeah, exactly, exactly that, yeah. So we just, we all agreed we would just go out for an hour. You know, me and my mum went in the garden. My auntie and uncle went out. I checked on him like 20 minutes later and he died in that window. So like you say, I totally agree there's something. So what strikes me is that there might be listeners out there who think, it sounds like a very privileged thing to do, mm. to have access to, to have funds to. How much is it for the privilege? How much is it? Like, how do you decide on the cost of the service? Very good question. I think it has changed massively over the years that I've been involved with it. So when I started, I would say our membership, partly because people, you know, had to pay for the training, our membership was predominantly talking in generalization sort of white affluent retired women and I'm not saying that's a negative but it definitely meant that the people approaching us you know maybe felt like I'm not represented here there's not somebody here that understands my life and my background but things are changing for the better so it's partly because our sister organization that runs the training offer bursaries now so cost isn't a barrier to doing the training but then on our side we fundraise so that we can subsidize if people can't afford to pay for a doula and people have moved from volunteering into this being a paid role because I mean you know personally I, I feel there's there's value in the work and it should be paid and when we get feedback from people we've supported they very much want to pay if they can people understand that transactional relationship and they can mm, feel a bit important. clearer about yeah and can feel a bit clearer about boundaries if they're Whereas if, you know, if you're volunteering and do the still absolutely do volunteer, but sometimes people can find that more comforting, I think, to know what the arrangement is. But as I say, it is not a barrier because if a person or a family that's contacting us for support can't pay, then we will pay the doula instead so that they don't have to. So I think there is a big change in, yeah, the variety of people that are coming to us for support, which is that's great. Brilliant. And in some areas... Well, in one area, because it's a pilot project at the minute, but we've actually been commissioned by the NHS. So people can access end-of-life doulas there through the NHS. And obviously that is free. That's huge. It is. If people listening want to fundraise or donate, how do they go about doing that? Oh, great question. Much appreciated. Yes, on our website, if you Google end-of-life doula UK, we, we have a page that people can donate through. And yeah, obviously if want people want to do an event to raise money, that'd be very welcome. And we can... Um, very much sort of ring fence those funds for what the people donating would want. So if they specifically want it to go towards paying for a doula for people that can't otherwise afford it, we can make sure it does go towards that. End of life doula UK. Okay. Yes. So are there any case studies that you'd like to share? It was just something that I kind of mentioned to you before we were speaking. I was just interested whether there is any stories in your you know in your kind of plethora of clients that you've worked with that kind of show and illustrate just how impactful what you do is and can be there are very much stories I'd like to share but I'm super mindful obviously of, of confidentiality and if anybody listened I wouldn't want them to 
feel that it was their story that I was sharing. But to talk about generally what I found the most interesting in the work, I think, is that one of the things about family dynamics that I mentioned earlier is that there, there can often be a lot of difficulties. You know, family relationships don't get easier just because somebody is dying. And in fact, that can just get heightened, like I said before. So I think the, the examples where I've been most pleased with what I've been able to do in that situation are where maybe otherwise the family wouldn't have been able to all be together, all be on the same page, all be prepared. Sometimes it's been the person who's dying who's kind of only asked or wish was that their family would all be together, all be getting on around the bedside. And, you know, to be honest, there's been a few of those where I've read the information we get through when somebody contacts us and I've thought, oh, well, that sounds quite straightforward. You know, they just want to all be in the same room. And actually, it's been incredibly difficult for them to be together. Maybe they haven't had a relationship for many years. Yeah, I think normally as doulas, we kind of gravitate and we can obviously choose who we work with in the sense of we, we should recognise our own boundaries. You know, is that something that I'm experienced enough to help somebody with or, or would another doula be more suitable? And coming from a therapy background, I've always fa- felt I've gravitated towards the the families or, or the groups of people who are having those difficulties because I feel like I can bring that clarity, helping people all get on the same page parking stuff that you know we are not going to fix right now we've got, mm. we're going to focus on this and and you know that thing that happened 30 years ago we are not going to fix it now mm. they're the ones that I feel happiest um about the work I've been able to do some other really interesting which I think happens a lot actually I think we as end-of-life dealers can maybe get more referrals if you like from people who are kind of living separate lives and also from maybe you know gay couples trans individuals who have maybe unfortunately had negative experiences with sort of mainstream healthcare services and see us as kind of a more personalized service that might be more understanding of, of where they're coming from and there have been examples where our members have supported people who maybe need almost like two plans you know one for biological family like a funeral plan this is what I want my family to know but also have have an identity that is somewhat hidden from Mm -hmm. their family and would like us to take that into account as well and I think we're because we're so I know sort of NHS staff very much want to be person-centered but of course due to you know underfunding and time just sometimes aren't able to do that and we're very aware that we have the luxury of time and so I think where we've been able to make a difference with people that are asking for that has been really significant as well. Amazing. What does acceptance look like? This is my big question for myself a lot of the time. Like, I think I've accepted what's gone on and going on. And I think I've accepted my situation, but like, how do I know I really have, you know, and it sounds like you said early on in this chat, you know, you've accepted your death and because of that, you know, you really live in the moment. But do you catch yourself sometimes not, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I don't necessarily think those two things are opposites. I don't think you're sort of either accepting or you're afraid of dying because, I mean, my other role, I'm a PhD researcher in death anxiety and... um 
death anxiety is just part of the human condition. You know, if we didn't have any death anxiety, we wouldn't be very good at keeping ourselves alive. So I don't think we should ever be aiming to have no fear at all about it. I think it's very normal, you know, on different days to feel differently about it. And death anxiety is such a personal thing. If you dig down further than that, there's different things that people worry about. You know, they they might worry about their own dying, about, you know, loss of dignity, that kind of thing. Or it might be about other people. They might worry about the people they're leaving behind. It might be a physical thing. People might worry about being buried. So I think exploring that is always a good thing, you know, mm. working out which bits of that really are uncomfortable for you and yeah, and not necessarily aiming for like a hundred percent acceptance. There's no right or wrong way to feel. There's only what's right for you and how you feel about it. And and I also don't want people to think that we like positive wash death. Like mm-hmm. obviously it can be very unpleasant. Families can see awful things. I think our message would be, you know, planning ahead, thinking about your wishes and preferences can make that as unlikely as possible. And we very much kind of repeat the message of one of our patrons, Dr. Catherine Manick, just brilliant if anybody's read her books, but who talks about the narrative of death and dying and also what she would just call normal dying. And, you know, she's in her work as a palliative consultant has seen many, many, many deaths. And in the vast majority of cases, it kind of follows a similar process. People can prepare. We can talk through people through what to expect. Um, both as the person dying, but those witnessing it as well. And I think the more knowledge you can gather about it, actually, the more comforting it can be. I think people sometimes think it would be the opposite. You know, if I read about it, if I think about it, I'll actually feel worse. And I think it is probably the opposite. Definitely. I was trying not to think about it for ages. And then suddenly I was like, it's still there, like whether I try not to think about it or not. Mm -hmm. Could you just repeat the name of that lady, Dr. Catherine? M-A-N-N-I-X. M-A-N-N-I-X. I'm going to definitely check her out. She sounds amazing. First book was called With the End in Mind, which is just brilliant stories of people she's supported. Um, and she's done a more recent one called Listen, which both are about how to support people who are dying in there. That sounds brilliant. So I was watching this amazing series on National Geographic with Chris Hemsworth, where he tries different he tries to kind of push his body to different physical limits. And the last episode is him accepting old age and death. So he goes and lives in an old age home in a suit that makes him feel he's 80 years old. And he talk, he meets with other people who have faced death in different ways or are dying. And he, at the very end of his life, it's kind of unexpected, but they suddenly create his death basically and he get you know it's really well done it's quite I found it obviously quite moving um but it's brilliant and he has a death doula she at the end of his life kind of reads through a meditation with him so I wanted to ask you like do you ever practice death with your clients great question I mean that makes me think that I should I don't directly through my doula work, but I do, me and um, my colleague, Katie Rose Whiting, have recently started a website called Finn, which is meant to be, it's meant to be a space where people can explore their mortality. And, and one of the things we do do is death meditation, like you're talking about. Oh, brilliant. And I know there's all different ways to do it. There is kind of sitting and, and meditating very much 
in a, a mind sense but yeah there's places you can go where you can get into a coffin isn't there and that's um, yeah that was part of it yeah. yeah personally for me like there's I can't remember who the quote is um I remember reading one years ago about sort of taking a minute every day to sit at your own deathbed and think what would you say to yourself and I don't think I do that in such a blunt explicit way but I definitely do do that in a sense because I always think you know how will I look back on this will I is there anything I might regret here that I could do differently now so I don't regret it down the line yeah I definitely you know say things to people now rather than waiting I don't save things for best and I think all of those things that clarity is what can come from exactly what you're describing but it's something I would absolutely use with people I'm supporting if it's right for them. You know, obviously some people might find that terrifying, but yeah, I think it's a, a useful tool and the same as death cafes, you know, something that people can think, oh, that sounds miserable and it sounds scary to come along and do, but almost a hundred percent of the people that I've spoken to that have been to things like that say, actually, it's made me focus on being alive, which is just the the opposite of what people worry it will be, you know. Mm, amazing. So why do we struggle with death so much as in our culture in the western world i've traveled around the east a little bit around asia and india and they have a very different approach to death and i know that because they live their lives on the edge a lot and they're not mm-hmm. so fearful i was once i found myself staying in a beach hut in goa and i, I didn't even know it but there was a cremation going on right next to where i was oh, staying wow. and i said what are they sitting around what's the ceremony why is there a fire and the person that ran the huts was saying oh that's a cremation it was like just no big deal you know part it was amazing life. part of life so what is it in the west and how is that changing and you know what do you hope for five years time or 10 years time I think you're totally right I think we are particularly rubbish at doing death in the western world and that isn't to broad brush everybody that is you know living in the western world there are communities where you know sometimes we've sat and thought oh you know why don't people from that community reach out to us for death doula support and the answer is because they already do it really well themselves you know and they don't need us to do that but I think it's a few factors so If you went back like 100 years, most people died at home and it's still like this in some areas of the UK, but where people would be exposed to death and to a dying body from a young age, you know, it'd be something that happened in the house, you'd see it as a child, it wasn't hidden away. But of course, there are many, many countless fantastic things that advanced in healthcare has brought us, but when it comes to death, it has been unhelpful that it's now behind closed doors that we don't see it that it's you know humans aren't good with uncertainty and if we don't know what something is then we tend to fear it right so the other part of that is that because it's kind of the medical realm healthcare professionals understandably can sometimes think oh maybe people wouldn't want to know the nitty-gritty of what dying is like but um again reference Catherine Mannix again the the narratives of dying just sort of spread through society you know you hear you hear you talk to somebody whose parent has died and they might say something like oh you know it was awful she was she was gasping for breath at the end and you know she was in a lot of pain and what we find again of course there are exceptions but if we talk about the natural process of dying there are a lot of symptoms of that that are actually much more unpleasant for the people witnessing it than for the person themselves and are really easily misunderstood. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, Catherine Mannix does a great job of talking through what's actually happening so that people can fear those less. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean the person's in pain. They may well be so unconscious they don't know about that. And, and those things can be comforting if we can just talk about it. And I think as end-of-life doulas, in many ways, we're trying to work ourselves out of a job because we want death to come back into communities. We want there to be somebody down the road who can say, oh, you know, I know about that. I know how to deal with that. That happened when my mum died that people know that they can go down the road to a death cafe and have a frank conversation about what they're worried about. We're not saying that it has to be an end-of-life doula that does all these things, but like you say, other cultures talk about this all through lives. It's around, it's visible. They maybe have sometimes beliefs that bring people comfort as well, and I think we're... I don't just think it's a problem with death and dying. You know, We can live on the same street as people and never speak to them, and we've lost a bit of the kind of compassionate community ethos, which is something that work to that and try and bring it back. Mm, I think as a culture, you know, with on that point, it's tackling difficult subjects is something that we have, yeah, generationally kind of just shoved under the carpet because we don't really know how to approach them. But actually by demystifying, which is what you do, it's what I do on this podcast, you know, it just opens up I mean, it's like what Gabor Mate is talking about at the moment. Like, there is no normal, you know. Actually, it's the opposite, which is normal, to what we claim mm-hmm. to be normal. I think it's brilliant, and I think, I really hope that there is a big future in it. And definitely, at some point, I will be looking towards the death doula to kind of understand it more. And I love the fact that I don't have to call up and go, um, I've got a year to live. You know, I can just, like anyone, say... I know my end of life is going to happen one day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're already doing it now, like you say, on this podcast, you know, you're talking about it, you're, as you're talking about it, you're experiencing it, going, posting it yourself, I imagine, and you're also modelling to everyone listening that you can talk about these things. You can talk about them and feel scared. You can talk about them and it can be uncomfortable, but you can still talk about them. Exactly. Oh, it's been wonderful to talk to you. How brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and experience and insight. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Real pleasure. Thank you so much. So that was my interview with Emma Clare, the death doula. And I don't know about you, but I am definitely going to seek out getting myself a death doula. Not because I think I am going to die anytime soon, but like I said at the beginning, because I just think it's such a brilliant way to plan for and organise the inevitability of my death. It's really interesting. I've been back from an amazing trip that Dinch and I took, actually. We went to Goa, And we went to Mumbai and then on the way home, we stopped off at Istanbul for a few days. I think that actually that trip and thinking about death was a really great synergy because as I talked about with Emma, that part of the world, particularly India, from my own experience, they don't fear death in the way that we do in the West. They're not afraid of it in in that way they kind of they seem to just accept that it's just part of life and I was talking to the lady that was running the hotel where we were staying in Goa about that actually and she said you know when there's like 
a big tragedy, a train crash or a building catches fire or, you know, something where a number of people might die, as much as that's obviously a huge tragedy, it doesn't seem to have that same sort of gravitas that it has in this country. And the idea that loss is such a huge tragedy, again, it's something that... I don't know. I don't know if I can, again, even articulate it, but it's such an inevitability that it's so interesting we find it such a tragedy. Now, of course, when there is something that happens and there's an accident and so many people die, it just fills us with such sadness and such sorrow. And I wonder why that's different over there. I think probably because the population is so huge. But also I think there's something culturally. They see that as part of everyday life. They see that as what happens with living. And I thought that chat with that lady was really, really interesting because she just got those differences in behaviour, really. And... What I was really struck by in Goa was the crows everywhere. And I remember that when I've been to Goa before. You can hear them, they're all around. And it's funny because, you know, Dinch was kind of a little bit aggravated at first about all the crows everywhere. And I said to him, you know, they represent death. And that's a really interesting reminder to have every day, all the time. I kind of felt there was some significance for me with the crows. I felt like they were just there in my face, (laughs) making all this noise, but they weren't an irritant. They were just kind of saying, like, don't forget, here's death. Here we are. This is it. This is part of life. And so this trip that we had was just phenomenal. I love going to that part of the world because... I mean, I first went in my early 20s. I took a a long trip, a six-month trip around Southeast Asia and India. And I was thinking back about that time a lot while I was away because, you know, that was over 20 years ago. And what was it about that trip that I just felt so in awe of these places and the people and the lifestyle? And I think, like, going back, I realised that what I felt in myself at that time was incredibly free. And I loved the way that life just seemed so different over there. And I think I felt really alive. I think that was a huge part of what that trip meant to me. And, you know, I came back and everyone was laughing because I had bells around my ankles and I was wearing all the bindis and I was burning incense. And I really like, you know, I'd kind of really integrated into that or so I thought. And going back now was, you know, a lot has changed and I have grown up a lot 20 years on, but obviously I'm there kind of feeling like a different me and I couldn't really put my finger on whether that was because life's just changed or my life is so different now, the person that I am now. This past year, you know, I'm coming up to the year anniversary of my diagnosis And that's in February. And that feels like really significant. I talked about these kind of anniversaries with Rebecca when we talked about Loss, the writer of Modern Loss. And, um, 
yeah, it's really significant. You kind of have been through everything for the first time. So I couldn't really differentiate whether this trip to India felt so different because I'm older and wiser and perhaps, you know, what I see now is kind of chaos and hecticness, those sort of less developed or less civilised parts of the world. Yeah, I guess I feel free anyhow. That is how I feel in my life and that feels great. So... That was a really interesting trip. It was amazing. And this idea of death following me around was very, very present. I felt incredibly sensitive to the air pollution. It kind of freaked me out a bit, actually. I think it's something that before I would have, you know, just kind of dealt with it, not a big deal. But I feel that I have to be really careful about that kind of thing. And, you know, the air in Mumbai is really dirty. And then we got to Istanbul and it's pretty polluted there as well. And so I developed a bit of a cough and it's been a bit stressful these last few days, I won't lie, because this cough, I can never differentiate. Like, is it the same as the symptoms I was having before I got diagnosed? And if it was, does that mean that there's like new cancer coming up somewhere? Like, is it like these lymph nodes that are left, are they pushing against my windpipe again? And, you know, Dinch and I flew back and I go straight into a scan today. So we got back last night and we're both a little bit on edge because I'm going in and I'm going back to that kind of routine of it's been three months since my last scan, but obviously it's been four weeks since my last kind of bloods and check-in. And I kind of felt yesterday, like on the journey, you know, all of this amazing trips that I've had this past year and all of this freedom, you know, I've had periods where it's been really, really hard, but I've also had a lot of time, particularly recently, where I've just done so much and it's felt so great. And I thought yesterday, God, maybe all this time's just been an absolute bonus. Maybe I'll go for the scan and I'll get my follow-up results next week when I see Kate Newbold. Maybe this is the time where things will change and we'll have to relook at my treatment and... Who knows? I did a post at New Year saying, you know, happy new unknown, because one thing I've learned is we really don't know. So I'm kind of going between like feeling this anxiety because this cough has come and it takes me back to the symptoms that I had before my diagnosis. And actually, that was around a year ago that I was, you know, coughing a lot and really starting to feel like something's not right. And on the other hand, I think, God, I've been so lucky. I've had the most incredible year. I've done the most amazing things. And I've developed this podcast, which I love. And I've spoken to incredible guests. And who knows what's going on in my body? I genuinely don't know. It sounds crazy. Yeah, it's very hard to know what's going on. So I go into the scan and I find out next week. And that's just the way it is. That's just the way my life is. And in between those bits, I make the most of living. I have a lovely voice with cancer this week. 
Mariella, who has sent me her voice note and it really got me thinking actually. So I'm going to play that for you now. Stay tuned. Hi, Katie and everyone. My name is Mariela. I live in Scotland and I was diagnosed with lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma back in 2020. It's been a lonely journey, especially at the beginning, uh, because I was diagnosed over the phone and during lockdown. <laughs> so, yeah, my family couldn't come to visit and support me uh, during the beginning of this process. But I must say that I've been fortunate because I haven't had any treatment so far. Uh, lymphoma hasn't been so aggressive, so I'm on active monitoring. They call it watch and wait. And um, I have to get checked up every three months to see that the lymphoma is at bay. But I do have symptoms. I have strong cancer fatigue, cancer-related fatigue, and pain in bones and joints and anemia. And, well, of course, because I have the cancer in the bone marrow, um, also my immune system is weak now. And that's been quite challenging during the pandemic because, yeah, I need to be almost shielding all the time. But I found that yoga really has helped me in this process. And actually, I became a yoga teacher to share the benefits of the practice with others because uh, it ha has helped me with my energy. You know, I have more energy now and uh, less pain in joints and in bones. And it also has helped me on a mental and energy level, coping with anxiety and yeah, developing mindfulness and being more present. So it's been really, really good. So that's my story. Um, hope I can help others experiencing something similar. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mariella. I think it's really honest when you talk about the lonely experience of having cancer. And it's something that has really struck me when I've been to certain like groups or, you know, engaged more with the people at Maggie's that everyone's experience of going through cancer is different. I've said that before. Being on your own is really, really hard. And I know how lucky I am to have a husband and my gorgeous stepdaughter and amazing friends and my family around me, my mother and my brother and people who are there. It's so incredible to get that kind of support. And I know that a lot of people don't have that kind of support or are living abroad like Mariella. And I think what's great is that she talked about getting into yoga and she knows how much impact that's had on her. And I've talked about that on the podcast when I spoke to Vicky Fox, yoga for cancer teacher, who's so amazing. That's in episode four entitled Integrate. And so, yeah, I think that what the yoga does is it also brings people together. Like, even though I do the yoga on Zoom, you know, very often you feel like here's other people who are going through something similar. There's something we understand about each other. We are a community. Sometimes Vicky has said, look at everyone here. Look at you all. Look what you're doing. You're amazing people. And you all need to appreciate that and see that and understand that. And it's a really good point. It's quite empowering. And I think that there are groups out there. There are ways to meet other people. Yoga is definitely one of them. Obviously, Maggie's Centre, which I support. Macmillan can help to bring groups together. If you're abroad and overseas, 
I'm sure there are cancer communities and cancer support groups out there. I think that if you're going through this alone or you feel alone, then it's quite a scary thing to do. But I would really recommend engaging with even if it's one other person. Hey, it could be me. You could drop me. In fact, why don't you get in touch with me if you are feeling alone? And um, I'll tell you ways to do that. You can email me hello at talkingwithcancer.com. You can go to my Instagram, which is talking underscore with cancer, and you can direct message me and I'll get back to you because I'd love to hear from you. If you want to leave a voice note for me and play out as one of my voices with cancer, then please do that as well. I love building this community of voices with cancer and I love giving people a platform to share their story. Next week, I speak to a really fascinating woman, Mary Olladaly, who is the founder and CEO of Cancer Education UK, who is working with the BAMA community to try and demystify stigmas around cancer and to try and encourage that community to get themselves checked, go to the doctor, not to shy away or be scared of cancer. There's a lot of stigma in that community around cancer and what it means, and there's a lot of shame. And she's doing some brilliant work, so I chat to her next week about that. And thanks again for joining me. I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>